Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest today, back by the woodpile, is Mr. Nick Gutierrez, a man whose accomplishments is truly so lengthy they could be a whole podcast into themselves. So we'll distill it down to just a few points. Mr. Gutierrez is a Cuban-American lawyer who was directly involved in the drafting, passage, and enforcement of the Cuban Liberty and Democratic Solidarity Act of 1996, which is more commonly referred to as the Helms-Burton Law. Currently, he is a senior fellow at the Cuban Studies Institute, president of the National Association of Sugar Mill Owners of Cuba, and a director of the Down Syndrome Association of Miami. We start off with Mr. Gutierrez giving a brief history of sugar and its relationship to Cuba, and then how his law firm fits into it all. During the you know 400 years of Spanish colonial rule in Cuba, since you know Columbus first discovered Cuba at the end of the 1400s, the main crop that that sort of grew comparatively very easily in Cuba without any fertilization, uh, irrigation, etc., just sort of taking advantage of the Cuban soil and and sun and climate, was sugar, sugar cane, over the years developed into Cuba's major industry, principal industry, has others, but that was always the most prominent. Um, You know, at first, very primitively, uh, you know, it's uh, sort of the the main um, technique hasn't changed that much, although technology has advanced. So you, you basically grow sugar cane, you cut, it, cut down the stalks, you squeeze them, you boil them and spin them, and with a few additives, it turns into sugar. And uh, this was done at a smaller level, then it was sort of centralized uh, and done on a bigger level. Of course, uh, it, it did develop with slave labor for the early part of that, uh, that 400 years, maybe the first half of that 400 years. Slavery ended in Cuba um, around the same time officially as in the United States, probably practically a little bit earlier. By the time the Cuban Revolution came to power, uh, the sugar industry was the major um, industry in Cuba, and Cuba was the world's uh, leading sugar producer and exporter. Now, uh, Cuban sugar uh, played an important part during the uh, Allies' uh, efforts in World War II, by providing cheap, plentiful sugar to the Allied cause, not to the Axis, um, you know, during World War II. So that was rewarded with a 3 million ton quota for Cuban sugar in the U.S. market, which was a a huge boost to the Cuban sugar industry. And the industry kind of grew up around that quota. And each mill, there was 161 mills back then, produced up to a their portion pro rata of that quota. Um, a little more paternalistic than we would have liked, but that was the, t- the, the you know, back then how it worked. So um, the Cuban revolution dismantled 12 mills, built eight mills, and then had 156 mills. And even until the mid nineties, uh, sugar was still the most important industry in Cuba, even, even with under communism. In, in the early 2000s, Cuba um, dismantled half of the existing mills in 2002 and then half of the existing half in 2004. So now it's only about a quarter of what it was, like 40 mills. 
and they stop and start. They don't grind continuously, essentially because they're they're paying the workers a pittance, uh, you know, 16 cents a day or something like that. Crazy. And um, there's since there's no owners and there's no bottom line, you know, people are basically seeing what they can grow secretly behind mm-hmm. a few rows of sugar cane and, and sell it on the black market. So there's basically a scarcity of sugar cane. So when there's not enough cane, the mills can't run efficiently. They stop and start. You got to use petroleum, which is expensive to restart them instead of instead of burning the bagasse, which is the crushed sugar cane. All of these reasons have led the Cuban sugar industry to nosedive. And where it once produced fairly easily seven and a half million tons, now it can't even get to one million ton. Even the, the Cuban official statistics you can't believe because they constantly inflate them. For the first time ever, Cuba has become a net sugar importer, actually importing sugar from France and the European uh. Union, from Brazil, Venezuela, etc. So, you know, which brings to mind the, the old uh, joke by Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, uh, American economist Milton Friedman, who said, you know, if the communists were to take over the Sahara Desert, there'd be a shortage of sand in five years. Uh, in Cuba, yeah. that's essentially what has happened in the sugar industry, uh, and it's you know it's just a microcosm of the of the whole of the whole system. But our organization, numbering about a hundred families and companies, uh, including thirty uh, some American ones that own the the pre Castro mills, has sort of um, reorganized at the beginning of the exile period. Sort of fell into. Uh, disuse as the decades drew on, there was no hope of anything. But when the Berlin Wall came down, we kind of came together again, organized, prepared to, you know, play a, uh, an important role in Cuba's reconstruction. Of course, um, unfortunately, we've been waiting now for for you know thirty something years since since the end of the Berlin Wall and and the implosion of the Soviet Union. But now, actually, this year, uh, with the full implementation of the Helms-Burton legislation by the Trump administration, we have a, a, a huge new boost where, um, and not just in sugar, but in other industries too, ours is sort of the flagship association, but we're active and uh, representing other industrial or, or agricultural organizations of former Cuban owners. And uh, Helms-Burton, known as the Cuban Liberty and Democratic Solidarity Act of, or Libertad Act of 1996, basically codified the U.S. embargo against Cuba, which means no president could lift it unilaterally. Congress by both houses, by a majority in both houses, has to um, uh, reverse it if it's going to be reversed. So that has made it a lot more permanent. That was done in the mid-90s to keep the Clinton administration from doing what the Obama administration later did halfway, which was, you know, to try to normalize relations with Cuba. Because we passed that back in the mid-90s when... To after Newt Gingrich and the contract with America, Republicans gained control of both houses. We were able to get that passed, unfortunately, at the cost of the Brothers to the Rescue shoot-down, the four planes that were shot down by Cuban MiGs and American citizens died, and which, which coincides with, with a, a, another very well-known Cuban sort of independence war uh, anniversary. So uh, the, the passage of that kept Clinton from normalizing. Bush uh, tightened the embargo substantially, but then Obama, of course, went full board to normalizing it. Couldn't lift it because it was codified. But Helms-Burton also uh, sets sort of incentives for a future uh, Cuban government uh, to get trade and aid from the United States if it does basic things like free political prisoners, call for elections, allow basic freedoms 
show progress towards uh, the restoration of property rights, etc. And then there's two parts of the law, um, uh, Title IV, jumping ahead, which obligates the U.S. government to revoke the visas of the executives, directors, controlling shareholders, uh, spouses, and minor dependent children and their agents of these foreign companies that traffic in U.S. stolen property. And then Title III, which is suspendable by the president every six months and was religiously suspended every six months between Clinton to the beginning of Trump. But at the beginning of this year, um, the Trump administration announced that they were going to suspend it, but only for 45 days instead of the usual six months. Then they did it for 30 days, and they did it for 14 days, and then they put it into effect. Sort of as a transition mm -hmm. warning to the European Union and the Canadians, which are our allies, and we have a lot of trade with them, but feel sort of the that they have a divine right to go to Cuba and engage in very um, reprehensible conduct, which is, of course, illegal in their own countries. Right. By that, I mean uh, dealing in stolen property. Mm -hmm. in, in other words, they enter into joint ventures with Cuban state entities, which were the ones that stole it from us. Right. And then they, they, uh, they, they engage in slave labor where, you know, they hire Cuban workers, but they don't pay the workers, they pay the government. The government keeps 90% and pays the workers a pittance. And much of this in, uh, investment is in the tourist industry, Cuba, of course, having beautiful beaches, um, where ordinary Cubans can't go. So it's, it's tourist apartheid. You know, it's outrageous, but somehow... The, the sort of liberal Western democracies feel it's okay, and, and you know, they thump their chest and demand that they have a you know how dare the U.S. infringe their sovereignty and 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 tell their companies going to Cuba that they may actually face uh, you know sanctions for what they're doing. Uh, so we have been very active in keeping this flame alive, lobbying for it, arguing for it, debating for it, uh, etc. Over the years and. The Trump administration, um, you know, for whatever you may think of, of them otherwise, and, you know, the tweets, etc. Um, <laughs> in, yeah. <laughs> in foreign policy, and specifically in Latin American policy, the folks that Trump has put in there are top-notch, mm -hmm. from my point of view. Right. I'm friendly with <clears throat> many of them. Um, they have implemented this law. They have worked uh, to isolate the Cuban regime and the Venezuelan regime, which is its main supporter. And now it's not so crazy to think that there could be a change in Cuba in the relatively short or near term because they, the regime in Venezuela is likely to change. I think the U.S. and even the European Union has invested a lot in that. And that means an end of subsidized petroleum to the regime. And with the full implementation of these sanctions, which the Trump administration has pledged to keep, which is so important for us to, for Trump to get reelected next year, you know, you could have a significant disincentive to foreign investment in Cuba. That coupled with the inherent failure of the regime to, to, to do anything right economically, you know, given their right. socialist system, you know, could lead to a significant change. If the regime had taken the properties that they stole from our families, remember Cuba was a very capitalist country, had a big middle class, biggest in Latin America, had a well-organized uh, record keeping and re record registry system. Wasn't it the third largest economy in the Western Hemisphere? That's correct. Right. That's correct. Yeah. Behind U.S. and Canada. Canada. It, it, uh, Uruguay and Argentina may have been rivaling it also. Sure. Uh, it also rivaled the per capita GDP of Italy and Spain at mm. that time. Both those countries you know, were poor at that time. 
immigrants left Italy and Spain and went to Cuba at that time. Nobody left Cuba. Right. It, it was ludicrous. The, you know, <laughs> you could literally count them on your hands and feet. Nobody left Cuba. Mm-hmm. So you know, now millions have left Cuba. Risking all kinds of dangers, shark-infested waters, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So, twenty percent of Cuba's population lives outside of Cuba, mostly right. in South Florida, but also in New York, New Jersey, Texas, Chicago, California, et cetera. The, the regime has just systematically violated all, all human rights. It, it has kept control by all means, repression, violence, et cetera, uh, political prisoners, executions, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean. One could argue that if they had taken what they stole and stole from us, even though that was morally wrong, and our families worked hard to and didn't steal that, they worked for mm-hmm. it. Uh, the government didn't give it to us, as, right. as Obama later said. But even if they had taken that and done something with it profitable for the people, or just plain and simply given it to the people, mm-hmm. then at least you could argue that you know things have changed and they did something. But they haven't given anything to anyone. Um, No one owns anything in Cuba. People work for the government. Uh, They may have the right to use property temporarily under limited circumstances. They may have kept a home if they stayed in it, Mm -hmm. but they can't even transfer without a bunch of uh, government uh, restrictions. Um, And and the reason is simple. The government is very clever uh, and very adept uh, in holding on to power. Cuban ingenuity was sort of overlaid on on Stalinist you know mm-hmm. totalitarianism and they've been very adept at staying in power but uh, if, if if the government was to give a an ordinary Cuban one acre then that ordinary Cuban would grow bananas and plantains and you'd have a pig and some goats and chicken <laughs> and that guy's never gonna go to a, a mass rally in front of the US intersection now embassy and denounce the you know the the, the tyrant from the north mm-hmm. and he's never going to go to a neighborhood defense uh, committee um, which which they have to do to sort of spy on each other under the communist system he's never going to have to wait in a in a in a, a line to get a ration coupon to get you know a meager amount of flour and eggs for that month um, it, cuba was a, was a country where the, the ground is very fertile. Mm-hmm. People grew stuff in their backyards. I mean, there was never a shortage of basic uh, foodstuffs. Now there is. Mm-hmm. Now they depend on importing it from outside. Uh, and, and, and there's a total, we mentioned sugar. I mean, multiply that by, you know, citrus, by petroleum, by um, uh, nickel mining, by tobacco, by, you know, it's the same uh, result in all of those industries. So incredibly, they've sort of tricked or cajoled or bribed the international community to sort of view them, and even even Western Europe, to view them as sort of a Robin Hood. They took from the rich, gave to the poor. They defied the American colossus. At, at what enormous cost and for what benefit? Right. You know What you're saying is similar. My wife is from Zimbabwe, and you know Robert sure, Mugabe, of course, sure. and he said he was going to right some old racial wrongs. And right. there had been sure. things that were done wrong. Sure. But he, he confiscated all the farms right. and did not give them back to the people. Right. He gave them to political allies right. whom right. just, they either sold it off themselves, sold off the equipment. Right. In what was originally the breadbasket of Africa exactly. now, exactly. they're having to go to Botswana or other places sure. to get sure. food. Sure, Not new. I mean, you know, the Ukraine yeah. was the breadbasket of, of the Soviet Union. I mean, everything, right. you know, they, they've... 
you know, in China, the sort of crazy agricultural ideas, right. like let's grind glass and put it in the ground, and that's going to make for you know for the ground more fertile. Or, <laughs> yeah, or let's let's have pigs in in urban apartments or right. grow tomatoes in in you know a cordon around Havana. They've had all these crazy ideas. Let's make the Zapata swamp into the peanut growing bread basket of of Latin America, which right. didn't work. I mean, so they've, they've, they've just wasted incredible right. amounts of resources over the years. And, you know, the, the, the most telling thing, I mean, as popular as they thump their chests and say they are, my God, celebrate a single election with and allow opposition candidates. Yeah. That would decide it in your favor. If you win and it's free, there's not much we can do. What do they say? The uh, people deserve the government that they get. But they, they, they're just afraid. They're paranoid of doing that. And sure. they've seen in Nicaragua, one of their client states, that in, in 1990, the Sandinistas had that idea. They thought that they didn't dreamt they would lose and they lost that right. election. Now, later, they've kind of cl- clawed their way back into, right. into power. But they are terrified of losing an election after 60 years of indoctrination, totalitarian control. Mm-hmm. They won't do it. Cuba-linda. You said in the early 2000s that, I guess, the Castro government started to pull back and shut down a bunch of sugar mills. Why would they do that if that was what kept them alive financially? It's a good question. It's a good question. I mean, in a vacuum, their decision was an economically rational one. I mean, the sugar industry was so inefficient and the 156 mills at that time were so underutilized that it made sense to scale them back to, to about 40. So it's, it's akin to like how slave labor, they didn't get the most out of a slave because he's not going to get paid anymore or any less, no matter how hard he works. So it's right. the same thing That's happening right. there. I That's got right. you. Okay. I mean, the reason they were underutilized was because of the socialist system. When you have a centralized system, mm-hmm. which, you know, you, you, you cut cane and then you, you left it in the hot tropical sun for several days before some bureaucrat signed off that that should be ground at a certain sugar mill. By the time you ground that, that the yield of that cane, which is the percentage that could become sugar, was like almost negative. It was almost like, like alcohol. I mean, it, you had lost the window of, of getting high yield, which if you had to meet a bottom line, you would care about and you would make it happen. Here, you don't because there's just no incentive. So, you know, you try to micromanage from Havana this economy and, and you overrule people in at the localities that know what they're doing, then you have a total shortage of everything. And then so they had to scale it back. And now, now that was a very impactful development because, you know, these sugar mill communities were sort of economic and cultural centers. When you, when you take away three quarters of them, you, you're displacing enormous amounts of people. Then they, these people were shipped off to re-education centers. I'm not making this up. Right, sure. Reminiscent of the Viet, Vietnamese communists, right. you know, to be re-educated, to be able to do something else somewhere else. Right. Some of these people ended up going into what they call the um, the self-employed, the cuenta propista sector. But even there, uh, you know, and many Americans on the left say, well, we've got to support the, the, the cuenta propistas, the, the people who own their own businesses. They don't really own their own businesses. They're sort of allowed by the government temporarily and at governmental whim to do certain mostly very low-level professions or trades. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not making this up. There's a list of like 168 approved trades. And one's like the repairing of dolls, 
you know, the repairing of umbrellas, <laughs> you know, the the sewing of buttons. I mean, they're like absurd Orwellian distortions. Jesus Christ, why not let people do whatever they can make a living at, you know, yeah. and, and not have the government micromanage even that. But we don't know what's good for ourselves, so... Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what, exactly. That's so the it's amazing. It's amazing. Right. It's, it's almost laughable if it weren't so sad and tragic, you know. So I know that tobacco is pretty hard on the soil. How is sugarcane, and do they have to rotate it, or do those two crops side by side okay I'm, I'm a little ignorant on this yeah subject. i mean the tobacco lands typically are in pinar del rio in the west and also in the um, las villas in the center over the centuries the spaniards uh, you know sort of realized fairly early on which lands were better for tobacco and which ones were better for sugar anyone who sort of varied the old ways kind of did it at their peril and you may, maybe you can you know change a little bit at the margins but the communists tried to like you know, wholesale change the wisdom, the accumulated wisdom of centuries to terrible results. Right. Um, tobacco is is requires a lot less land than sugar. Uh, it's what Cubans refer to as a, a microculture. So, you know, you, you, you grow it on, on smaller plots. In many cases, you have to cover it with cheesecloth to sort of protect it from, you know, the, the more direct sun, etc. So it's done on a, on a smaller scale. Sugar is a high volume, low margin crop. For it to be economic, economical, you need large extensions of, of land. Here in Florida, for example, you can shoot Florida's completely flat. So you can computerize the combines uh, that cut the cane. In Cuba, there are areas you can do that, but there are other areas that are hilly. So they use the manual labor, mm -hmm. which, of course, in the United States is much more expensive, much more problematic. There was lawsuits. So, you know, the, uh, the American sugar industry... In Florida, Hawaii, Texas, Louisiana has shifted almost completely to uh, mechanized. Now, the yield in Florida, for example, compared to Cuba is much lower. The comparative advantage of Cuban soil and climate, you know, with very little effort, very little investment, very little uh, uh, irrigation, pesticides, etc., produced maybe 14% yield for, you know, where, where in the U.S., with all, you know, a, a massive effort, maybe it gets to 10 or 11%. And that's a big difference right. at that at that level. It's similar to what I understand with tobacco seed. If you plant it in Kentucky, which we do, it may get about a foot high, if that. But if you plant that very same seed in Cuba, you have to be on a horse just to see over top of it. <laughs> that's probably true. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cuban sugar cane, after you cut it, would produce new shoots 10, 15, 20, 30 years before you have to dig it up and replant it. In Florida, it might be three years. Wow. In Hawaii, it's like every year, just to give you an idea. Huh. And, and even, you know, the, the thickness of the cane, you know, right. is a lot thicker there than here, etc. Now, here, of course, they have experimented and they've, the USDA has, has, you know, made some cane better for sandy soil, some for colder climates, some for more muck soil around Lake Okeechobee, and, and they have, you know, maximized that. In Cuba, they've done very little of that. You know, sugar industry could also produce energy cogeneration, as they do in Florida, where the mills are burning bagasse and, and creating energy that could be put onto a grid and distributed. Also, uh, alcohol, gasohol. Sugar can be converted into alcohol, and you could run cars, right. you know, as they do in Brazil. That's a big, that's a big industry. Huh. And there's other byproducts, uh, 
press board. You can use a crushed cane to make, you know, wood substitutes and that kind of thing. Um, fertilizer and, and feed for animals and those kinds of things are, are byproducts. But of course, the, the, the regime and the, the system prevents the industry from being fully utilized. In tobacco, you have uh, French and, and Spanish and even some American uh, companies that, that have licenses to sort of buy and distribute Cuban tobacco, which is among the best in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, Cuban exiles in Dominican Republic and in Nicaragua have uh, cultivated that. tobacco right. and, and, and produce some very good cigars there too. Unfortunately now, because of the Obama administration where certain American businesses were legalized in Cuba, like the cruise ships, like the airlines, like uh, uh, pharmaceuticals, agricultural uh, companies, etc., you have the unseemly phenomena of American companies trafficking in the stolen properties of other Americans. Right. There's a family from Kentucky the Bain family, B-E-H-N, an old Kentucky family that went to Cuba in the late 19th century, got involved in the telephone industry and were the biggest telephone providers in Havana uh, under what was then known as International Telephone and Telegraph, which later morphed into the owners of Sheraton Hotels nowadays. And they had that system ripped out from under them when the revolution came to power. Interestingly, the revolution later tried to peddle uh, the phone circuits in Havana to a Mexican group, Grupo Domos, in the, in the 90s, uh, after a few years, fell a, ran afoul of the Mexicans, took it from them, about $300 million, kicked them out, put them on a plane to Mexico, and then peddled that to Stet, Italia, the Italian phone system, mm-hmm. who ended up having to reach a settlement with ITT to avoid the title... F- for visa revocation sanctions of Helms Burton mm-hmm. back then. So wow. it, it's, all, it's all kind of times it. But the Baines also owned um, and operated the Havana Docks Corporation, an American company based in Delaware that ran the, the, um, the principal docks in Havana. The Baines, along with another family that owned the harbor rights in Santiago de Cuba, were the first on May 2nd to sue Carnival Cruise for trafficking in their stolen property. So here you have an American company, a massive employer, and big presence in South Florida, being sued by you know two families, one from Kentucky, one from uh, Jacksonville, Cuban-American uh, one, and the other one, not Cuban-American, Kentuckians, but uh-huh. you know, they had spent 100 years in Cuba. So that suit is now you know starting to wind its way through. And of course, Carnival will argue that it had a license from Obama to, to go to Cuba and therefore, it should be immune from liability to the owners of these properties that it's using. Our counter-argument is, well, wait a minute. You may have license to go to Cuba, but not necessarily to go to these properties that were stolen from Americans. Mm-hmm. Go somewhere else. Now, the truth is, if they go somewhere else, those properties are also likely stolen from people who are now Americans. But anyway, we're very involved in, in the, the bringing of these suits for all of these families in the banking industry, in the tourism industry, in the shipyards and uh, shipping port industries against the foreign companies or American companies that are using these properties uh, in Cuba and that have assets in the U.S. and therefore we can get jurisdiction over them and sue them under Title III uh, without the usual restriction that existed before Helms-Burton Title III was implemented was that you know the American courts would not question the act of a foreign sovereign against its own people. And since we were Cubans when we were, our properties were taken by Castro, even though they were done illegitimately and, and in violation of Cuban law, American courts aren't going to wade into that dispute, even if those properties are now being trafficked in by foreign companies that use the U.S. economy. 
Helms-Burton, Title III, sort of legislatively circumvents that judicial precedential prohibition previously uh, to allow us to, to take to carry these suits forward. It's un untested. It's, we're just starting. There's going to be a million obstacles. Right. But it's a very interesting uh, development just really professionally okay. uh, for, from someone who's watched this from a legal point of view over the years. And in a sense, um, you know, it gives Cuban families the first chance they've ever had since their properties were stolen to have some shot at justice. Not necessarily to get the property back. That'll come from a future Cuban government, but at least to get compensated by the foreign companies that are using it now. And there are, there are lawyers uh, here in Miami, like the one that we're at now, this, this firm, that are bringing these suits on a full contingency basis. So there's no out-of-pocket costs, fees or costs, unless and until there's a substantial recovery, which is a very interesting development. And it, and it creates a massive disincentive for foreign investment, and foreign investment usually being very sort of fickle, uh, to invest in Cuba when not only are they dealing with a totalitarian government that can take their investment from one day to the next, freeze their bank accounts. And they have done this. And they have done this to yeah. the Spaniards, to Italians, to Canadians, mm -hmm. throw you in jail on trumped up corruption charges, you know, bribery charges, mm -hmm. and kick you out of the country. Not only do you have that danger, but you also have the danger that the American government can revoke the visas of your executives and their family members under Title IV, and that you're subject to lawsuits by the legitimate owners in U.S. courts under Title III. So, you know, the rational investor is going to say, Jesus, I'll go to Puerto Rico or Dominican Republic or Jamaica. I'm not going to risk my, my luck uh, in Cuba with all of these variables. And that was the whole idea of Helms-Burton, try to scare away foreign investors to isolate the regime so that there, there can be democratic change on the island. Say what you choose, but I'm all confused. I've got them sugar, all sweet sugar. In modern America, there's a debate on whether financial compensation should be paid to the descendants of African Americans whose property, their bodies, labor, and lives were stolen by those in the slave trade from the 1500s to 1865. In modern China, the individuals who live in the region that had been the nation of Tibet until the Chinese invaded it in the 1950s still advocate for their national sovereignty to be returned, often with violent consequences. Yet there are other similar disputes between other nations and peoples that have, over the years, ceased to remain an issue of public debate. I often hear many Americans, particularly on the political left, many of whom also advocate for American slave reparations, argue that the Cuban exile communities should just move on given the amount of time that has passed since the communist takeover in 1959. I was curious what Mr. Gutierrez made of all these varying arguments and scenarios and how they related to his work. It's historically interesting. I mean, you know, for example, African-American reparations, you have the issue that, you know, for example, my family, we never had slaves. Mm -hmm. we, we came from Cuba, you know, 60 years ago. So why should we, you know, have to pay for what folks in Alabama benefited from? from you know, so I understand all that. Right. It is interesting, you know, just sort of on a, comparative level to, to our situation. Now, I would equate our situation much more to, for example, the Jewish efforts to get justice against the Nazis. I mean, the, the, you know, the Jews never forgot. Uh, and they're uh, still alive. And they're still, and they're still yeah. alive. And, and you know, the, the Israel helped, you know, hunt down Adolf Eichmann in Argentina and all of these things. And U.S. Congress uh, helped Jews uh, recover against Swiss insurance companies and banks 
and all these sorts of things. I would almost agree with you if what we were asking was going to was going to come out of somebody's pocket and hurt somebody. So it was going to hurt the Cuban people, but it's not. Mm-hmm. First of all, what we're doing now under Helms Burton um, is we're we're seeking damages against foreign companies that are benefiting from the use of our stolen properties. You know, the foreign company can come to us and and make a deal with the owners with us, the owners of the property, even as they deal with the Castro regime that has that is illegally possessing our properties in Cuba. Okay, fine, that's fraught with peril. We'd advise against it. But if you insist on doing that, at least recognize us as the owners and pay us for the use of our property mm-hmm. like you would anywhere else in the world where you would do a due diligence investigation you would insist on seeing a chain of title and you would deal with the owner you'd pay him rent anywhere in the world right. why is cuba different right. when someday we go back to cuba and there's a new cuban government ideally what we want is not compensation for our properties i mean in some cases you may have to do that because the properties have been materially altered but the default mode should be return all the properties to legitimate owners so it's not something that's bad for the people it's something that's good for the people right. you want to get the economy back in private hands so that the free market can work it won't work you know in state hands or even in sort of crony capitalist selectively privatized hands. Right. So what, what we're asking for, you know, respectfully, is good for the general welfare, not just for us. And that's how we would distinguish it, maybe okay. from some of these other reparation causes. Have you been successful at all? Well, um, not yet in <laughs> okay. monetary terms, okay. uh, which, which is, you know, my wife has been, you know, and many people have said, oh, you know, you're wasting your life, you're wasting your Even time. Even your wife has said this? You know, you, what are you doing? You're, you're, forget about it, that Cuba past, you know, right. think, you know, we have kids, we got to think of the future. In many ways, uh, they're right in a sense. This has been a big roll of the dice to, to dedicate this much time and effort and, and resources to something that may never come about. Now, uh, I'm, I'm sort of... Uh, looking a lot better since uh, this uh, this year came around, and the Trump administration has allowed us to to uh, to bring these lawsuits, and we have the promise at least of you know some some good good settlements, and and, and hopefully it'll be good for me you know uh, personally economically not uh, as well as for the cause and for the families that I, I work with and all, and all of these things. We have I think uh, been successful over the years in a couple of ways. Number one. We've obtained internationally the recognition that we are the owners of those properties. So that will be helpful now that we're going to court and, and suing the traffickers. And I think that will be helpful also tomorrow when we are able to go to Cuba with a new government and try to get the properties back. We have also, in many ways, for example, in the sugar industry, there's very little foreign trafficking in the sugar industry. And in large part, that's because we did a good job of letting people know that those properties were stolen from us and that we're Americans and we're going to exercise our rights. And even though we weren't able to exercise our rights, we had the threat that maybe we'd be able to exercise it, which now we can, we actually can. So we've gotten some sort of non-monetary success. Uh, and hopefully now we can, we can monetize that into monetary success. Right. Have you heard from the Cuban government, had they threatened any of these companies that if they work with you all, that they're going to lose their contract, or had they made any kind of public statement one way or the other about this? That's interesting. Um, first of all, I'll say that, the, for example, the European Union and Canada have passed all kinds of these blocking laws preventing judgments against their companies under Helms-Burton from being enforced in their home countries, which is why we have to go after them here and we have to identify assets here. 
in the U.S. But they also have threatened to sanction their companies that settle with us under Helms-Burton, mm-hmm. uh, as well as create uh, restrictions on us doing business in Europe or traveling to Europe. So the, the Europeans have done that, which is amazing. I mean, think about the due process of that. Mm-hmm. You're telling someone, you know, we're gonna, we, your government, supposed to be protecting you, is going to fine you or sanction you if you, in your best interest, and voluntarily reach a settlement with, with someone under wow. Hans Burton just because we don't like the law. We don't like that the U.S. is, uh, you know, extending their jurisdiction overseas, which happens every day. I mean, the, right. the Canadians, the Spaniards, you know, extend their jurisdiction for fishing rights or, you know, for to detain, for example, General Pinochet in London, a Spanish judge ordered him detained. So law is becoming globalized and extraterritorial just by its nature as the world progresses, you know. Now, the Cubans themselves, interestingly, you know, vilify us and me personally. And actually, they do a, a so, pretty fair job of characterizing my activities. So they know your name. They know my name, and, they, uh, <laughs> and they, uh, they've given me a tremendous boost public relations-wise, because bad publicity there is good publicity here. Right. <laughs> and even among the Cuban people, I, I had the opportunity to visit with Cuban refugees that were fleeing Cuba back in '94 the ones that went to Guantanamo or Grand Cayman or the safe havens in the Panama Canal zone. And I met these guys and ladies that were my same age there, but for the grace of God go I. Their families weren't able to get out. They had to live under that regime. They found the way to escape. Then they kind of came face to face with me and people like me that the government had vilified. We started talking and they're like, you know, yeah, you're like us. You know, what, what's, you know what's, what's going on here? And they said, you know, we, we recognize you uh, because the government would talk about you on state television. Wow. And we didn't really understand all the things they were saying, but we knew that they were, they were saying bad things about you. You're be doing something <laughs> right, you know. You got to so, feel pretty proud. Felt really proud. Yeah. And, and then there had been some unrest in those camps back then because people were desperate. And there was some sure. riots. A couple of Cuban rafters were killed. Some American soldiers were injured. And so when, when they brought me into a room full of these guys in Panama... They were handcuffed behind their backs. Some of them were bruised and beat up. You know, and I insisted that they they be released from their handcuffs. And the guards were like, "No, you're crazy." I'm like, "These people are Cubans. They're like me. They're not going to do anything." Right. And you know, so of course that I won some credibility with them by right. by insisting on that. And and you know, one of my greatest compensation for doing this is when I go to a an auto parts store, or a garage, or a gasoline station, or a a grocery or uh, I see a maintenance guy in a building and there are people who've, who have never met who come up to me and, and, they, and they, they'll hug me and say, you know, really? keep hitting them hard. We love what you're doing. Wow. You're doing the right thing. Uh, you know, keep at it. Don't worry the people who, who decry your efforts. You know, keep on that track. It's a good track. You're, you're fighting for all of us. And they may, may not have had properties in Cuba, significant properties, but they like a policy that's that's attacking and weakening the pillars that are propping up that regime that has, you know, taken all their freedoms, maybe executed some of their relatives, maybe thrown others in, 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 into jail, forced them to leave their country and start all over in a new world, which we're thankful to and we appreciate and we love our new country. But, but you know, it's, it's still, it was a traumatic experience. You know, my dad passed away uh, almost 15 years ago. And, uh, and I think, you know, towards the end of his life, he was like taken aback how much I had taken to heart all the things he had taught me over the years. And I was like, Dad, what did you expect? You talked about this to me since I was, you know, old enough to understand, you know, of course I was going to go in this direction, you know. And, uh, and I think, he'd, you know, he'd be very proud. And some of the older guys that I've worked with over the years, my, my wife teaches me sometimes that, you know, 
I'm, my friends are the grandparents of her friends. Right. Uh, you know, she's 10 years younger, 11 years younger. And I deal with these guys as clients and I've become friendly with them over the years. But look, this is, a, this is a, an important, noble cause. Even if we don't get anything out of it, it's the right thing to do. If we don't do this, the bad guys win to a certain extent. And if we can make some money along the way, great. Uh, so that's, that's what I'm involved in. There was a, a law student listening to this, or someone who's involved in law. Where would you direct them to learn more about this kind of legal speciality? Yeah, I guess? yeah. Uh, I mean, they'd almost have to contact me. You, and meet with so you're me the guy. And, yeah, there's a few others. <laughs> right. Uh, not because of special talent, just because I've been involved right. with it for so long. Right. You know, I've gained a little bit of knowledge over the years, and now I'm advising certain firms to do it. Uh, you know, how to do it. There will be people, of course, that, that are getting up to speed uh, uh, quickly, so it won't be so mm-hmm. narrow. But this is, it's really fascinating because it's really a new field. There's no precedence. Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. Right. There's a lot of obstacles, but I think there's a lot of advantages, too, to, to pursuing it. And, and, and maybe, you know, even a, a small percentage of these uh, cases have, are successful, that will be a, that'll be a, uh, have a big impact, both locally and internationally. Are you aware of other exiles from other countries that are watching what you're doing and thinking like, hey, maybe we can do this. Yes. Situation in Eastern Europe was a little different because you didn't have large-scale foreign investment in those communist systems before the, the regimes fell. But look, I, I've reached out to, I've studied what happened in, in Eastern Europe uh, and, and helped sort of form my views on, on Cuba, on what should happen in Cuba. And I've become good friends with uh, some of these folks. One of them, his name is Ivan Pilip. He was the chairman of the Banking and Finance Committee of the Czech Parliament, a young guy. He had been active in the, in the, in the opposition to the communists and, and was able to get a, a top position early on. He, very successful in the Czech Republic nowadays. But he and many Czechs, as well as other Eastern European countries and governments, much more so than their Western European counterparts, have supported our battle, our, our struggle. You know, while the Spanish government... Yeah, you know, with some exceptions, has been supporting the rights of traffickers to go and invest in our stolen properties. The Czechs have been pressuring for uh, isolation of the regime in international forums. They've taken trips to Cuba. They've met with dissidents, and in this case, this uh, friend of mine, Ivan Pilip, and his friend, his colleague John Bubenik, were thrown in prison for forty-five days. And here you had a, a sitting and a former member of the Czech Parliament. Cuban does, government doesn't care. Put him in jail for 45 days and the European Union had to intervene to get him out. So he has a foundation set up to help pro-democracy efforts, not just in Cuba, but in Nicaragua and Venezuela and Bolivia, Ecuador, some of the other countries that have felt the, the influence of the, of, of the Cuban regime right. throughout Latin America. Um, so, you know, we're in constant contact and we do some work together and, and those kinds of things. So I think that's important. But even better, even more important than that, you know, the Cuban regime in, in its propaganda against me, sometimes they, they play on Cuban television and they'll, they'll, they'll show me talking and they'll show like sugar uh, industry scenes. Mm-hmm. And then they'll, in the background, they'll be playing like demonic music, like from The Exorcist or, or The Omen, <laughs> you know, uh, which, is, which is actually kind of cool. But, yeah. uh, but anyway, in, in a perverse way. Right, right. Este es el abogado estadounidense Nicolás Gutiérrez, alias Nick quien lleva el ostentoso título de presidente de la llamada 
Asociación de Hacendados Cubanos en Estados Unidos, uno de los que se sumó a la redacción de la Hells Burton de la mano de Bacardí. The regime says that what we're doing is aimed at stripping away the Cuban people's Uh, you know, schools and, and child care centers mm. and universities, which is all nonsense. I mean, you can only go after properties being used for commercial purposes and by foreign entities, you know, so nobody's going to lose a school or, or a child care center. But the Cuban people are not stupid and they're watching and they're starting to get some internet and they're seeing what's happening in Venezuela where, you know, the, the Castro-supported regime is killing young protesters in the streets, mm -hmm. university students, etc., And, and the Cuban people must be saying to themselves, oh, so wait a minute, Cubans in exile in the United States can elect their own representatives, you know, members of Congress and the Senate, presidential candidates, Cuban-Americans. They can pass legislation favorable to them, like Helms-Burton. They can go to courts and exercise their rights uh, with, before independent judges. We can do none of those things in Cuba. Uh -huh. Why not? That's weird. So yeah. Cubans in exile can do what we're denied doing by our own government here, you know. And I think this is, is a lesson. This, is, this is, begins to sink in. The beginnings of the rule of law are being set by these crazy lawsuits in federal U.S. courts. Someday in Cuba, this will help shape a consciousness mm -hmm. that the rule of law has to be restored. And if it's not, Cuba will never advance from the hole that the totalitarian regime has left it in after six decades. Hey, thank you for your time. And if anybody wants to reach out to you, how can they get a hold of you? They can email me at uh, ngutierrez, that's N-G-U-T-I-E-R-R-E-Z, at gzf as in good zebra florida law law.com or my cell phone 305-343-3306 okay. welcome to reach out and i'd love to you know educate more americans about this which is an important issue and it's different than others experience but it ties into i think a lot of the overarching themes that have made this country great If you're still in a Cuban-American mood, you might check out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile 189 with poet and art critic Ricardo Paljosa, who talks about both Cuban artist and his own family's experience in exile. Also, back on 186, Alberto de la Cruz talks about Operation Pedro Pan, author-historian Carlos Ayer, Chinese Cubans, and much more. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. <laughs>